looking at a passage of scripture from the Gospel of Mark, the eighth chapter, and starting in the 31st verse, we'll arrive there in a few minutes. As you know, the Apostle Peter has been with Jesus from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He had seen Jesus call some of his disciples. He had heard Jesus teach in the synagogue. He had seen his mother-in-law healed by Jesus. He had seen the demon-possessed man liberated. He had witnessed Jesus call down bread from heaven to feed the people. He had seen both rich and poor healed on the same day. He had seen the dead girl brought back to life, all of that by this time in the gospel. But he'd also seen John the Baptist beheaded, which was the end of John's ministry, it seemed. And Peter knew, he just knew, that Jesus was the center of everything he and the disciples were doing, and that if Jesus were to leave them, the whole mission would fall apart, and the disciples would be scattered, and all would be lost. In Peter's mind, if Jesus were to be arrested and taken away, that would be proof that the prophecies had been interpreted incorrectly and that they never really did apply to Jesus to begin with. So when Jesus starts to talk about being rejected and about what the elders have planned for him and that Jesus would be killed, well, Peter knew that he had to curb that kind of talk right away. So Peter jumps into action. Whoa, Jesus, let's not talk like that. Years later, it seems like the shoe is on the other foot. Paul writes in Galatians about this particular encounter. Peter is the leader of the fledgling church and the preeminent voice calling to the lost of Israel to accept their Messiah, Jesus Christ. As time went on, some members of Peter's congregation started to believe that trusting in Jesus as Savior was fine, but to be really devout, to be a true Messianic Jew, you really needed to obey the full Jewish law as well, along with the traditions of the elders. Sort of like Jesus plus Judaism. And gradually over time, Peter stopped mixing his table fellowship with Gentiles. No one knows why for sure. He may simply wanted to smooth the waters a little bit. You know how it is. To avoid a controversy, you alter your behavior and accept a few things you really don't like. I mean, still, it's better than dealing with all the fuss and all the difficulty that others might raise when your practices don't align with their ideals. It's just easier to stop eating with those Gentiles than it is to deal with the criticism of the Jews he's trying to reach. After all, the Jews are his target audience, and how is he going to be effective with, effective with them if he doesn't at least try to fit in with them? And so he eats just with the Jews after a while, which keeps him in compliance with the Jewish traditions and dietary laws. Nothing wrong with that, right? Well, Paul thought there was something wrong with that in a big way. This is Galatians 2, 11. 
When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Obviously, Paul's not one to mince words, right? For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those Jews who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. He's calling him just like he sees him. So that their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live as a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's, he's rather strong. I mean, this is, this is Peter getting both barrels at once, full in the face in public. Paul's going to continue in Galatians. You know what cha how chapter 3 starts. You foolish Galatians, he adds. Who has bewitched you into thinking that keeping the Jewish laws, were, that that's more important than living life in the spirit? How have you been fooled so easily? And I think the reason is, it's pretty easy, easy to be fooled. I mean, there's a tendency to apply our own human wisdom to our practices of the faith, which invariably leads us into error. I mean, we think we know best. We think we know the best course of action. We want to avoid controversy. We think we see things clearly. I mean, it makes sense to us, it must be right. And we, we get so confident in our own opinions that we begin to judge others by what we believe is true. And we try to convince others that our opinions are right, never fully realizing that our opinions are at least in part based on our own reasoning and perhaps not in harmony with God's purpose or mission in the world. We rely on our own wisdom. We rely on our own strength. And in the process, we become like Pharisees, like the blind leading the blind. I think we should, all of us, expect to be corrected from time to time. We should expect the Holy Spirit to enter our hearts and lives and establish new course corrections to make sure that our practices, our wisdom, our rational processes stay consistent with the leading of the Holy Spirit. I think we should expect that because we know that left to ourselves, and to our own shallow human thinking, we're probably gonna get off course now and again. And so we should anticipate the work of the Spirit to keep us moving in the right direction. We ought to expect to have our beliefs systems confronted by the gospel message from time to time. Every time we're tempted to say, well, I know what the Bible teaches, but in the real world, we can't expect. From that moment on, we're on shaky ground. Once you know what the Bible teaches, the appropriate response is to obey, to do what God calls us to do. In the story from Mark's gospel, the eighth chapter, Peter has wisely assessed the situation 
concerning the centrality of Jesus to the mission of God. But Peter's knowledge and his understanding are limited. He knows that there is a danger if Jesus leaves. But like us, he doesn't see the whole picture. This is exactly the, transla- the, the, um, the story from Mark 8.31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him his side and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Did you catch the contrast that Jesus draws there? The concerns of God versus the concerns of humans. Fortunately for us and for Peter, Jesus doesn't simply rebuke. He explains, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, so this isn't words just for the disciples. He called the crowd. That means when he says he called the crowd, he's calling all of us in, right? We've just been roped into this by Jesus himself. He called the crowd to him with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, that sounds like us, doesn't it? The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Can you hear Jesus' words, his words of explanation about this? Being a disciple of Jesus Christ means simply these three things. Denying myself, taking up a cross, following Jesus. In this particular passage. Denying myself, taking up a cross, following Jesus. And I suspect that many of us are as guilty as Peter is of pretending to know what is important and what is best, but not having all the facts. I don't know if we always see the full picture. For example, the Psalms teach us to pray morning, noon, and night. Daniel knelt to pray three times a day. Jesus prayed before sunrise and in the evenings. Luther prayed long hours and told his followers to get in the habit of going to sleep with the Lord's prayer on their lips. Calvin urged prayer, quote, when we arise in the morning, before we begin our daily work, when we sit to a meal, when we have eaten, and when we retire, end quote. I could go on and on and on listing the prayer advice the saints give us across the ages. But many of us just don't want their advice because we moderns know better. Our prayer meetings are not heavily attended here. 
Prayer seems to be an inconvenience at best. We toss a few prayers here and there, mostly when we're perplexed or in trouble. And I think we need someone to stand up to us and like Paul say, who has bewitched you? Who has so easily fooled you into thinking that prayer doesn't matter? You want to know why the church is often powerless? Because she is often prayerless. She attempts the work of God in her own strength and in her own power. And rather than invest time in prayer, time that might feel unproductive to us, we prefer the efficiency of doing something ourselves. Let's get right to work. Let's make a difference now. And we ignore the Spirit of God saying to us, come away, be quiet, listen to me, pray. And when we do not pray, we do not get the needed course correction or the insight that comes from heavenly wisdom. Another example. We live in a day and age where it is politically popular to shout, America first. Christians are among those who shout this the loudest in some corners. But I want you to reconcile the words of Jesus to that attitude. These are the words of Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow. Now reconcile that with the egocentric philosophy that says, always take care of yourself first. I mean, if we're honest, the idea that we should always take care of ourselves first is no respecter of political party. It's just the whole American populace who thinks that, right? It's always take care of me first. What, what can you do for me? Show me the money. It's all, it's all that, right? But the Christian ethic is just the reverse of that somehow. And so we have to like continually be on our guard to keep from getting sucked into the worldview of the day, which is always me first. We need someone to come alongside of us and say, who has bewitched you into believing it's all about you? Do we? deny ourselves anything? I mean, can you list one thing you purposefully deny yourself of? And I'm not talking about dieting, which is the result of not denying yourself over a long period of time. Do you impose any limits on yourself for the sake of the gospel or out of love for Jesus? Can you can you list one cross you are bearing by choice? I mean, cross carrying is always an optional exercise in this sense. For example, if you have a cancer diagnosis, that is a serious and difficult burden to bear. It may bring the same level of pain as any cross-carrying you're called to do. However, bearing up under a deadly diagnosis is not the same thing as cross-carrying. Having cancer 
was not an option you chose. You didn't pick up cancer. It happened to you, but you didn't choose it. And cross-carrying is always about us seeing the cross the Spirit has laid in front of us and taking up a burden by His grace because He's instructed us to do it for some redemptive, gospel-oriented purpose. There's something Jesus wants to accomplish through our cross-carrying. So no matter how horrific the other circumstances are in your life, and, and I'm not trying to minimize the significance of those or the pain that they bring to us, they're not exactly cross-carrying. Cross-carrying is what you choose to do in obedience to the leadership of the Holy Spirit for his benefit and according to his purpose and his wisdom. And when Jesus says, pick up your cross, that's what he has in mind. That's what he means. Christians carry crosses, and this is self-sacrifice. And you probably need to know, you don't get to carry the cross just anywhere you please. Wrestling with that reality was one of the crises of my life. At one point, I had to reckon with the fact that serving Jesus according to my own plans and my own ideas was not really following Jesus. To follow Jesus meant doing the thing he commanded us to do, not the things I wanted to do, and thus ended my teaching career. Because that was not the thing to which he was calling me. He was calling me something else that I didn't really want to do, but when Jesus says, this is the way, walk in it, we walk in it. We do what he calls us to do. We're called to follow his leading. I'm hoping that you're reading along in the devotional book with us that we've picked for Lent. If you've already read today's uh, segment in there, you get to read the, Lord, the letter that Corey Ten Boom wrote to forgive the person who betrayed her to the Nazis, which resulted in her incarceration in a concentration camp. And in the letter, she mentions that her father died there and what happened to her sister and how she spent 10 months in that concentration camp. And then she goes on to say, you need to understand, I completely forgive you. I completely forgive you of all the pain and injury you've done to my family. But you need to understand, there are consequences of your decision. And your only hope is to ask Jesus Christ to completely forgive you as well. And I'm thinking, what, what's the cost of that kind of forgiveness? I mean, how do you get to the place where you can forgive someone who betrayed your family into a, into a concentration camp? You know, it's ridiculous for us to think that we can follow Jesus without speaking to him. It's foolish for us to think that we can figure out the way forward without any attempt to follow him. But of course, Peter knew better than Jesus, right? He knew that this kind of talk would lead to problems in the ministry, and so he confronts Jesus, and Jesus has harsh words for him. Years later, Peter slides into compromise, and Paul has some harsh words for him. And as much as we love Peter, he wasn't always the best example for us to follow. But we can learn from his mistakes. Lent is all about learning from Peter's mistakes.
we don't know better than Jesus. Sacrifice will be necessary to follow Jesus. We can't avoid criticism by choosing to go along with the crowd. Paul showed Peter the folly of that way of thinking. There is only one way forward. Deny yourself. Pick up the cross the Holy Spirit lays before you, which is the opposite message from indulge yourself, and follow Jesus. I am not going to attempt to point out every area of compromise into which we unwittingly slip. I picked just two today. But the Spirit and the Word, the Word which is sharper than any two-edged sword, can cut through all of our rationalizations. He can show us the way forward as a church, as families, and as individuals if we will simply deny ourselves, pick up the cross the Holy Spirit lays before you, and follow Jesus. Spoken like that, it sounds kind of easy. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Jesus. It is anything but. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that's true. The very act of presenting yourself before the Father in a daily way is discipline. It's work. It requires faithfulness and consistency. It requires a level of sacrifice just to begin walking with the Holy Spirit. But if we will, if we will. There will be joy in the pain. There will be purpose and fulfillment in the cross carrying. We will see God do things among us that only he can do. And that's what I want to see. That's what I want to hear about. Those are the testi testimonies that I long to hear of how God has used us together to bring his kingdom to bring health and well-being and freedom and vitality to people who were just caught up in indulging themselves. We, we want that testimony. We want to hear what God will do as we're faithful to him. We want, we want the deep-seated confidence that comes from walking toward heaven together with a community of faithful saints who encourage us to follow Jesus. There's, there's something special about that. When we're part of a community of faithful people whose primary desire is to honor Christ and to do his work and see that the world becomes a better place by the work of the Spirit in us, there is a, there is a spiritual security in that that is based on the Holy Spirit who knits our lives together and helps us to walk in ways that are pleasing to Him. That's what we want. But we still have to make individual choices to deny ourselves, to take up the cross that the Spirit lays before us, and to follow Him.
This is the time of year where we especially focus on that message. It shouldn't be limited to this time of year. But this is when we especially focus on the fact that we want to hear God's voice. We want to be in that quiet place where God can speak and we can respond. But we can recognize that those things we're jumping over were crosses that the Spirit put in front of us. And we listen so that we can obey all that he has to say to us. In a moment, we're going to sing this song together. Teach me your way, O Lord. Before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you are so faithful to guide us and to lead us. Lord Jesus, we know you promised that when the Spirit came and was given, he would lead us into all truth. And so we believe that the Holy Spirit that lives in us is even now teaching us your truth, showing us your way, convicting us of sin, keeping us on the narrow way. We want that, Lord. We want the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives that enables us to follow you well, to know the difference between wisdom and foolishness, and to be productive for the sake of the kingdom. Lord, would you speak to us again? Would you draw us aside? Would you help us as we give, your, give you our attention in these days? And may all that we do to listen in these days be profitable for the sake of the kingdom. Help us, Lord, to that end, we pray. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me while we sing this closing song together? Make this a time of prayer and a response to what you hear him say. Teach me your way, O Lord, teach me your way. Your guiding grace afford, teach me your way.
Pray that by the grace of God, He would give you all that you need to deny yourself, to pick up your crosses, and to follow Him. That He might be glorified in our lives together. And that He may enable each step of that way. Amen. Go in peace.